This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. For much of history, politics is often seen as a man's field. Now, while we have seen strides in more women taking up political leadership and wanting to be involved in politics to effect change, it's almost never an easy journey for these women who often have to work twice as hard and are held to closer scrutiny by the public than their male counterparts. So what does that political landscape look like here in Southeast Asia for women political leaders? And what are the barriers that they face in this region? So joining me today on the show is Dr. Ameson Peng, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney, to find out more about this issue. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aim. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you know, we're speaking today because I came across a recent um, research report that you wrote, um, which was very interesting, looking into the barriers of political participation for women, um, not just in a particular country, but across several countries in Southeast Asia, in particular, I understand Thailand, Indonesia and Malaysia. Now, uh, why was this something that interested you? You know, what sparked this idea for you? Actually, this report was sponsored, well, was funded and organized by the Westminster Foundation of Democracy, uh, as well as the government of Canada who actually funded this project. And I was brought out to the project, me and my colleague, uh, Dr. Amalinda Sarirani uh, from Indonesia. We were brought in here to do research about where we are in terms of the trends of, you know, women in political leadership. And my main interest in joining this project is that the Westminster Foundation wants to make sure that we expand how we understand women political leaders, because often we think about women politicians. But in fact, there are many types of political leadership beyond just um, formal politics. Right. Mm -hmm. You can make or or try to instigate political change in a much more diverse ways mm -hmm. than just running for elections. And this is why um, I was interested in taking part on this project. The second reason is that I actually do, uh, I'm an, an expert on digital politics. Mm -hmm. So I, I study how the internet, social media impact politics in Southeast Asia. And I was interested in to figure out whether or not um, te the digital technologies have actually emerged to help or hurt women political leaders in the region. So those are the two big reasons for why I was interested in this project. Mm. And I do definitely want to dive into your interest in digital politics and how social media has impacted women leaders. Um, but you mentioned in your report as well the World Economic Forum's global gender gap. And I was looking into the latest numbers um, that we have from 2022 reports. And Clearly, the biggest gap that we face is in the political empowerment of women. Do you think that this is something that we take as seriously compared to other components like health and survival, education, or even economic participation? Yes, um, that's that's sort of where we stand, exactly how you describe. That we made um, lots of headways in terms of not just changing the actual statistics of how many women actually graduate from high school and mm -hmm. university, but actually the social accept acceptance of women leaders in business, women leaders in other sphere of life. But the, the gap remains where with politics. Um, and I think I mean, before we uh, I went into to do a deep dive into this research, 
I I felt that this could be could be cultural, but I didn't really um, know exactly how and whether or not and you know ASEAN is a very culturally diverse region. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that culture, you know, of women really shouldn't be in politics is something shared across a number of of, of countries that we look at. So I'm originally from Thailand and growing up. Uh, we've always been told, you know, this is not a job for you because you're mm. a woman. You should go into politics. And it's not it's not in a paternalistic way. I mean, women tell their daughters this, right? Um, it's not it's not a, a profession that is encouraged. Uh, you know, not just politicians, but doing anything political. And on top of this, uh, Southeast Asia is a, it's a largely a non-democratic region. So doing anything political, whether or not you're a leader, carries huge risk. Um, uh, and maybe for women, there's just greater risk being perceived as well. So just many reasons already for why anyone, whether man, woman, or, or otherwise, should go into politics. But um, on top of that, there's, you know, maybe more concern about women going to politics. So that's kind of one of the motivations for what I was trying to figure out, you know, why there has been little movement. In fact, there has been a regression in public acceptance of women political leaders in the region. And our finding actually points to Malaysia being one of the more interesting cases mm-hmm. where there has been progress in basically virtually every other indicators of gender equity except for politics. It's mm-hmm. just at a standstill almost going backwards as well. So that's a fascinating finding. If you think that gender equity should be accompanied by, you know, economic social development, uh, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe you're wrong about that. Hmm. I think what you said is interesting and it resonates a lot because here in Malaysia, I mean, a lot of us have sort of dreamed of having a female prime minister or want or say we want to see more um, women being put in leadership roles like ministers and all that. And we do see a lot of women sort of in the field of politics and, and activism in relation to it. But it, and yet we still don't see them in politics, right, which is um, or, or sort of being allowed that space to take up these roles and I guess that's an interesting one because it it is you're right you know there is sort of that sense that politics is a very much male dominated playing field but have you seen I guess greater interest or any or interest from women themselves wanting to take up these roles in politics I think the stories we have so we interview 45 women political leaders 15 mm-hmm. per each country that we focus on Thailand Indonesia and Malaysia and uh, so half of them were politicians, the other half were, you know, um, leaders of political movements mm. or civic organizations that are demanding political change. So both civil society and politicians. And what we find is not a lack of aspiration per se. I think women who have made a decision that they want to do something to change politics have crossed that point, right? They sort of crossed that line of, I'm not going to go into politics, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, so this is already a small minority of women, very tiny minority of women who want to do something about the country in a political sense, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes social sense. So that's, that's one. Um, so it's not the aspiration, is just looking at, different ways to enact change. Um, how how do they how how would they lead lead 
change in what ways and so this is when we came up with the the three part ways mm-hmm. that we try to look at how women get to the leadership position um, based on the interview data but also what we know about women's status in each country and and other other studies that we've looked at so the easiest um the, the 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 path that we often think about, you know, who who are the women politicians in our region? Mm-hmm. And then the number one um, group of women that we think of are basically daughters and wives of existing politicians, mm-hmm. right? So these are it's a family affair, and I think we often think of these women as having the easiest pathway of getting to politics because you're born into politics. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to convince anyone that you wanted to do this. You grew up watching your family members doing this. You have resources in terms of, you know, works. Uh, so we call this this type of pathway a networker. So mm-hmm. someone already born with networks. And networks are crucially important across the board um, in both materially and non-materially. Networks mean people are opening door for you. Or you already have a brand name. People recognize your name mm-hmm. or your uncle's name associated with someone. Um, but what we find is that even if you're born into politics, it's still hard work. If you're talking about politicians, maybe political parties are much more likely to invite you to run for uh, uh, an election because... Mm-hmm you carry less risk for them, right? You already have a well-known name. You have networks, especially if you're running a constituency, you might, everybody knows your family. So mm. it's, your chance of, of getting elected is higher. But the women who, are, who decide they're going to do this work really hard. It's not like they're born into this and they don't work hard. They would visit, you know, way before campaigning period. Do all this grunt work that mm. you expect women politicians to do. 24 hours a day, they're, they're never, especially if they're, if they're from a well-known family, they're no longer private individuals. Yeah. Everyone seems yeah. to think that they have access to these people at all times for everything. Getting text messages when the drain is blocked, getting text messages, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff where you just, you can't stop. Uh, so it's 24 hours a day where whether or not you're elected because you're part of this political dynasty. So that's both pros and cons. Uh, but that would be, you know, basically the, the easiest pathway is you already have the political networks. Some women have business networks, mm-hmm. but not political networks. So they're rich. They come from richer families. They probably have, you know, families have lots of businesses. They have the capital, but no one in the family has gone into politics. They don't have political, what we call political networks. Mm. So that increases the risk, right? So, okay, you have money. But what are you going to do with that money? Um, so political parties still interested in women who have networks other than political because if, especially with business networks, you know, money still talks. But they, it's still a lot more work for them to try to create, you know, which constitution you're going to run. So we find that women who have business networks are much more successful if they're not running in constituencies. So in certain party system, they have open lists or mm-hmm. closed lists where you're running as a party and not necessarily in the constituency. So you're not campaigning locally because when you're local, you need to know the people who, who you're representing. You need to have your network sort of rooted there. So they're more successful in, in open lists or closed lists kind of system. 
So the third pathway is the hardest one, uh, is the activist. Mm -hmm. So this is the activist pathway where it's very common for for political women political leaders who are not politicians, who are, you know, head of organization or particular kind of grassroots movement. We actually find extraordinary entrepreneurship in this area, especially with young people. So young women are come, you know, they're born kind of digital natives, they're growing up with all this barriers being removed from them and they find it quite easy to take up a cause you know political change social change and just start on 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 facebook right or have a whatsapp uh, community or what have you so uh, the technologies really remove a lot of these costs associated with um setting up an organization setting up a group promoting their cause, even even doing videos or educating uh, about particular information, it, it becomes a lot easier. And in fact, COVID accelerated that because mm. people are working from home. They're really leveraging their whole lives on technologies and people are finding new ways to connect with others, finding interests in political cause. Uh, so we find that more than 50% of women who are activist type of leadership are also entrepreneurs meaning they start a new organization mm. and they're almost always young uh quite young uh, especially in Mal- malaysia case as well uh so young women activists uh become political leaders by virtue of setting up their own initiative and organization online mm. so they're de facto leader because it's their thing So their biggest challenge is not the main barrier, which is, you know, how do I get to where I need to to become a leader? They Mm -hmm. already, they basically nominate themselves as leaders. Mm -hmm. But the question then is, how do they get their own organization and initiatives recognized? And this is where I think patronage still works, especially, you know, in places like Malaysia, where the more successful organization or women political leaders in the civil space find that it's important for them to be to to have acceptance from politicians so former politicians recognizing their work or being part of their board uh, on their organization or lending some credibility to them still matters and it also built networks for them to push you know maybe the initiative started with like you know 10 people on the ground and you need to scale up it's mm-hmm. hugely important for the scaling up part because, um, you know, they can kind of build, you know, especially if they started in uni, you know, student kind of initiative. They kind of have this grassroots thing going on with other student activists and they need to scale up um, and expand their cause. Then they, um, yeah, they needed a bit more. Uh, they, they need to be more of a networker after that. They need to network with the important the important people. Those are our, some of our key findings. Mm. That's interesting because while there are sort of three different networks, they all each have their own challenges that they have to deal with. Um, and it's it's always, I mean, no matter what, even even though some of them might have certain things easier, they, there are always other challenges that come up. All right, we'll go for a quick break now. Amy, and when we come back, um, we'll dive more into the main barriers that women political leaders in the three countries that you looked at, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia and Thailand, faced. I'm speaking today to Dr. Aim Sin Peng, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney, and we're talking about her research into the barriers that women in politics face here in ASEAN. We'll be right back after a few messages to keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Soo An. On the show with me today is Dr. Aim Sin Peng, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney. And we are talking about women in political leadership roles, especially here in ASEAN, um, and in particular looking at Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand, as that was part of a research that Aim had done. Now, before the break, we were talking about sort of how women in politics usually get into it, how there are three sort of main pathways that they take, which is either through networking, being, um, you know, part of a, fam- a political family, being from a business background, but not really having that political network. And yet they still have that sort of financial influence that is um, often seen as powerful in politics here in Southeast Asia, as well as a third pathway, which is the activist pathway. Now, this is, of course, the most difficult one and is often sort of the pathway that we see young women um, take up where they set up their own um, civil society organization and through that try to effect political change. Now, Going into the barriers, um, I was reading through your report and I saw that there are three main barriers that you've listed down, um, the three being lack of financial resources, sexism and state repression. Tell me more about these three barriers. And I guess, you know, was that something that you expected or was it surprising? I think most people underestimate the level of state intimidation. Um that women face and because we didn't compare that against men at that level Mm -hmm. uh we don't know if it's any greater or not so let's go back to you know what are the key barriers so this is the kind of question we asked our interviewees like you know what are some of the barriers so of course financial is is obvious especially if you're politicians right i'll be running for office it costs a lot of money it's not cheap everywhere uh everywhere and you know with Money politics, you know, vote buying, still an, an important part of our elections, especially at the constituency level. That's just that's just how it is, mm-hmm. unfortunately, right? And the, the the cost just keeps going up. Um, so there, so that, so there's one. Um, we have actually interviewed women political candidates who who are running on you know running on MT. So we we look at a few exceptional cases mm-hmm. where they were able to get elected without any, having any money, but this, they didn't have any money. And those were almost always the case when they're not running as a constituent candidate on an open list party or open or closed list. Mm. So if you're a woman who wants to be elected and you don't have the resources, you better run for office in a country that has a party list system. That's what we look at at the systemic level as well, right? We're looking at, you know, where do we find success? You know, what do they look like, these women who are successful? If they can avoid having to campaign at a local level, way more likely to mm. be successful without resources. So that's that's the pathway. How are we going to fix that? You know, it's been a problem for, for decades, right? So I, I just, you know, cultural norm, legal system, all sorts of things. Second is violence. Uh, I think we underestimate the the level of violence that women face, um, both activist women and politicians. And there's two major forms of violence, physical violence and intimidation and online violence. And this is where my expertise kind of comes in. So we looked at how often or how pervasive, you know, online abuse harassment, trolling, name-calling, fake news attacks, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And 
it's extremely high, but highest amongst young activist women. Mm. The very people who rely the most on online technologies are the most vulnerable to online abuse. So we look at the profile, we come up with a profile of the most vulnerable women political leaders in the region. And they are women who are young, Mm -hmm. so under 34, who are social media savvy, university educated, and a Muslim. Mm. They get the most hate. So religion's a factor in that as well. Yes. And from their own country. So Indonesian women mm-hmm. who are Muslim, uh, Muslims in Malaysia. And they're getting, because they're getting, kind, they're getting the hate, the religious hate speech about them not being good enough Muslim. And we're trying to figure out what that was causing this. And we, we look at surveys, value surveys across 20 years. Mm-hmm. And two countries that are regressing on that is Malaysia and Indonesia. So there's a portion of younger, more religious Malaysians and Indonesians, in terms of Malaysia, they're Muslim, who are more socially conservative now than they had been 20 years ago. So they're far less likely to accept women in politics for this reason. So in fact, there's a huge cultural and religious factor at play here. And um, we're not exactly sure why, but some of our Indonesian experts suggest that this, you know, this whole like Islamization had been going on in Indonesia, I'm less sure about Malaysia, mm-hmm. um, has, is now having an impact on the younger people. So it's been going on for two decades or more, and now you're actually seeing you actually see a sharp decline in the acceptance of women political leaders amongst the 25, uh, sorry, 18 to 34 age group in Indonesia and as well as Malaysia. We saw the reverse in Thailand because you think young people are more connected, they're much more globalized, mm-hmm. they should be more progressive. That's what we see in Thailand. Mm. So it's the older generation who are more conservative, religiously, socially, who are like, well, no, no, women shouldn't be in politics. But the young people are totally, totally progressive on that front. It's not the case for Malaysia and Indonesia. That's an interesting area to to look more into, right? Because that's something that we've heard um, from from our own um, political analysts um, and researchers here in Malaysia as well. That that we are sort of seeing a trend, a, a rise in in conservatism, especially among the younger people. And that's definitely something that I think bears more research into. Now, you mentioned your third um, barrier, which was state repression, right? Now, that's an mm. interesting one because we sort of have very different um, political systems across these three countries. So, how did that? Play play out? So state repression was almost non-existent for Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is not surprising because they're the most democratic out of the three countries. And that says something about our region because they're barely democratic. Right? Like not, you know, they're democratic, but you know, lots of lots of issues there mm-hmm. with human rights. Um, Thailand's the worst. So Thailand has had many years of military dictatorship where women political leaders, both politicians themselves mm-hmm. and the activists, were subjected to jail and detention, and in some cases, sexual harassment while in jail. Mm. Uh, so physical, so physical state repression, um, and also, you know, online abuse and all that. Uh, the Malaysian case was the case of being followed, um, 
being told IS was here, ha having seen um, agents of the state uh, trailing the camera trail. These are most commonly with the, um, you know, opposition uh, politicians, less so for the, well, no longer the case, but the, now the reverse. So for the OMNO and BN politicians that we looked at. Um, and so that's the state repression component was the combination of intimidation mm -hmm. uh, without actually without actual physical violence and physical violence, which is the greatest for, for Thailand, which because it had been under military rule for so long. So that was, I think, for Westminster Foundation, that was the most shocking uh, and uh, result for, for me. I'm not surprised I'm from Thailand, uh, but I just, you know, they just didn't realize that well, of all these things we have to worry about mm -hmm. is the state that you can't really fix. Violence is part of the state apparatus of how they manage people. Um, with the online violence, um, it's fascinating that women political leaders find different ways to manage it. Mm -hmm. So women who are a bit older they are a lot less reliant online. Mm -hmm. uh, so they just use it less. And, and, and something about older women political leaders, they just, how do I put it? They just care less. They're just mentally stronger to battle with online abuse in a way I think younger women political leaders just at some point, I mean, they're strong, obviously, but sometimes they told me, you know, it's, just, it's hard. Mm -hmm. And I think because... They care way more about what's being said, right? Especially if you, you know, let's say you're, you know, you're a young activist. You started your own initiative mm -hmm. online. You needed to build that online crowd, so you read everything. You, you read all the comments, the reply. Yeah, most politi so politicians generally they just don't read anything, um, or they pass to the assistant who, who 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 then read all the abuse and then only filter the important ones to to them, right? So politicians just had a bit more ways of dealing with it. Um, activists, uh, especially younger ones, you know, they, they needed that online, but they needed to build their crowd or Instagram, whatever it is. So they're way more open to kind of abuse. And they also like, just, it just affects them more. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about as you know, we had a workshop after that, and a lot of these leaders were present in person was how do we safeguard against that? Mm -hmm. Or if we, what are the ways in which we could because a lot of the abuse was very gendered, you know, um, women just get a lot of sexism, like how they look, what they dress, what they wear, you know, if they're fat, not fat, like just all this stuff mm. that we don't expect men to get in the same way. Definitely not, because it's all about looks, almost all about looks or religion, mm. one of the two, right? Hardly ever about their political stance. Yes. Uh, and and that's hard, because, you know, what, what do you do with that? You're like trying to say something important, and the people and they're commenting on you are just like, oh, you look terrible. Whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, right? Or you're a bad Muslim or what it is, you know, whatever it is. It's like, what do you say to that? You can't engage, mm -hmm. but yet you, you absorb all this hate over time. And we find that mentoring helps. Mentoring with, you know, older activists or more influential women who have just sort of gone through other types mm. of challenges and said well you want to be in this game so you gotta but i think the perspective from the westminster foundation was trying to figure out 
it shouldn't be the women's responsibility to take it on every time. You know, they get all this abuse and now they have to figure out a way out of it. What can we change in a society level to make it more friendly for women who are trying to instigate political change or any change at all? Um, and the solution is not that easy, but I think in education is part of it. The report is part of that sort of this shedding the light on the kind of challenges that women political leaders face mm-hmm. uh, that are more than men. Um, having conversations about why younger people in Indonesia and Malaysia yeah, are are changing the way they believe, you know, the role of women should be in politics. What is causing this, you know? I just, I think, open up the conversation more that women political leaders is not just politicians anymore. It's, and it should never be. And to make being in politics normalize. Like, what you're doing could be a small way to political change, right? Because you are um, hosting a radio show that's educating people about important issues. That's a, that's a political act, mm-hmm. right? And I think we often don't recognize a lot of these everyday political acts that we do and recognizing women who do them. And maybe slowly, it's very it's going to be very slow, mm-hmm. culturally we could get back, you guys could get back on track again. There was, there was a progressive line, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000, and then somewhere between 2000, mid-2000 and through to 2020, something happened in Malaysia that made people a lot more conservative about how they think gender uh, equity plays out in the political realm. Hmm. I think, you know, being being in the media field, I'm also familiar with the sort of comments, especially online, that, that female yeah. politicians get. And it's very disheartening for us to read about it, let alone how the politicians themselves feel when they're doing this to affect change. And yet, you yeah. know, if they have people who are saying very mean things about them and, and about them, not about their policies, like you said, you know, there's, there's something very wrong there that needs to be changed. Yeah. Personal attacks. My interviews with politicians pretty much tells me that they don't they, they don't really read any comments. Mm. That's good. They just they just <laughs> said, "Well, I'm just not gonna deal with that." Mm. Activists don't have a choice. I think a lot of them just just have to absorb all that hate. Politicians mm. can just deflect, right? Just deflect, 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 disengage, you know, and they can do that because then the next thing comes up. But yeah, huge political cost. The other thing I thought I was worried about is that you know we were thinking the age group of women political leaders. Because as a mother of two, I cannot imagine going to politics. Mm. I just don't have any time. So one of the things we actually asked was about was the caring responsibility. Mm. And not just children, but also uh, elderly parents or somebody in the family. Like, what, you know, do you consider the barrier? And and, and it's quite clear, right? Uh, Women who face the least barriers women who have very minimal or no caring responsibility at all. Interestingly, if you're a Muslim and mm-hmm. you're not married, it works against you. Oh. So they get more hate for not being married and running for office than it's, it's quite okay in Thailand to, or maybe for non-Muslim Malaysians to, you know, be a politician and not married. Mm. In fact, good. You have more time to spend it with your country. But if you're not married and you're of a certain age in Indonesia, you might not get elected. 
And that's adding extra burden, right? Because like, well, you have to have shooter now to get elected. And then, you know, that's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of responsibility. The kind of sacrifice you're going to have to make. So yeah, we still see the Indonesian women who face the fewest barriers mm -hmm. are the older ones. So the kids are grown up, out of the house. They've enough, really well established. They don't have to, you know, financially, they might have to financially support their elderly parents, but they're okay. Um... Whereas in Thailand, you still see, you know, more commonly, you know, younger, single, not unmarried, uh, women without children. So they face less barriers on that on that front. And quite a few of them actually left politics because of the increased caring responsibility that they can cope. Mm. Uh, so that's sort of, you know, something we, we were interested to see if there is that problem in the region and there, there, there is, right? So there's mm. all, almost this massive gap between... No, the the much older politicians versus the much younger one, neither of which have to worry about children. Mm. And that seems to be the big barriers. If you have little children, it's just a lot for you. Mm. And just to wrap up our conversation, Aim, a quick one, you know, what sort of um, changes would you like to see to improve the situation for women politicians? You know, are we talking about affirmative action? What would you like to see? Well, the quota really helps. So that's one of our other findings. The quotas, electoral quotas, um, that is mandatory only in Indonesia, mm -hmm. that works. That just, just blew out all the biggest barriers for politicians when it goes to politics. I know that Malaysia talked about this. So Malaysia and Thailand had what we call voluntary quotas. Mm -hmm. So yes. it's voluntary. Um, and it's, it would have been great if they were adopted by more parties than just often the opposition party mm -hmm. uh, or the one or two parties that decide to do this. Um, and secondly, I think women need to better understand what kind of stuff they're going to face in the online world when they go into political leadership. You know, what does hate speech look like? What are some of the resources mm -hmm. you can reach out to if these things happen to you? What can they do, right? I think a lot of them are just sort of going going into this, and that's the last thing they think about, you know. But is in fact, it's so prevalent, it's so violent that it's becoming normal to see hate, so much hate. But mm -hmm. it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. This is not normal, you know. To just accept that, oh, this is part of the deal. It's not okay, and we should talk about it, right? Uh, it shouldn't be a shame. And learning different strategies of coping, I think, at this point, because we going to wait for the tech platforms to change their policy. We might wait for a long time. Uh, but at least have the resources and where can they go to? How do they report abuse? Mm -hmm. um, what does it look like? Um, that's really important. And just, you know, doing this kind of work where we shed light on the ongoing state level mm -hmm. of violence that we don't realize is still going. And and so it's, it's, it's bad, really bad in some countries. Like women go to jail, you know, um, just for trying to run for, for election. Like, mm -hmm. why? It's unacceptable. And I think when I mentioned this about Thailand, I think people are shocked and they're like, well, it's a military dictatorship, you know. They do put politicians in jail. And I think people just think about Thailand like they go to a beach resort. Even Malaysian, Singaporean go to Thailand to shop and mm -hmm. they don't think that this is the kind of state that does this regularly with impunity. So all of these findings, I think, are sort of just raising really important awareness but also important questions that we haven't stopped to think about in a while. Um, and I think those are the, the key contributions we made through our report and um, hopefully it will lead to uh, actual change on the ground.
Thank you so much for joining me today, Aim. I've been speaking to Dr. Aim Sinpeng, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney, and we've been talking about how women in political leadership roles don't have it easy here in ASEAN. Now, if you missed any part of today's show, any previous Love & Learn episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Love & Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.